Today I welcome Dr. Raynard Kington, Head of School at Phillips Academy Andover in the USA. In part one of this episode, I get to meet the person behind the desk of one of America's biggest school leadership roles to see what makes him tick. Get ready to be surprised. First of all, I want to get to know you, the person behind the educational leadership. Favorite color and why? I dress like this. I tend to get things in navy blue. I go to mostly just Brooks Brothers and Joseph Banks, which is the discount Brooks Brothers. And the reason is because you don't have to think about what you're wearing. There is a certain color palette. Navy blue is just neutral and, you, and it almost matches everything and you don't have to think about it. Favorite movie? The most recent one is really, I just ran across it. My spouse and I watched it. Gosford Park, Robert Altman's movie, which was sort of a, I didn't realize it was by Julian Fowles. It was sort of his run up into Downton Abbey. It was interesting, but my favorite, one of my favorites is A Trip to Bountiful. Beautiful story about Horton Foote, I think, wrote the book. It was a um, story about a white, sort of lower middle class woman who lives with her son and his wife in like Dallas, I think, had to move in when, you know, because they assisted her moving in because she, they didn't want her to live by herself in her small town of Bountiful, Texas. And so she sort of escapes and takes a bus and goes back home. And it's about that journey back home for her and all the people she meets on the bus going back to Bountiful and a trip to Bountiful. So it's a beautiful story about, and actually Cicely Tyson acted in a version on, and I think she won a Tony for it in one of her last onstage appearances, a Black version with Black actors. And how did you discover this movie? I mean, what made you, was it a recommendation? Was it just of the time? So it was award-winning. It was in the 80s, I think. 80s or 90s came out, and it, was, it won awards. It was a very popular movie. And I think a famous actress whose name escapes me at the moment, I think she won an Oscar for it. So it was really, it was just this perfect little movie, something that you would think would be unfilmable. And obviously it was a play before, but just this, what it means to go home and the need for people to go home and reconnect. How if you have a sort of a, I think it's pretty true if you have sort of a relatively happy childhood and happy life to go back is this draw. My mother, who's passed, was like fourth or fifth generation Texan. At the end of her life, I asked her, she was in her 80s then, it was deteriorating. I asked her, she, it was hard for her to travel. So she couldn't go back to her hometown, which is, as an aside, she grew up in this all black community. They were called Freedom Towns, these small communities of freed slaves. I inherited part of the plantation that my family were slaves on. It's been in five generations of the family. And she had this really protected little world. And she said, no, I don't have to worry about going back because I can go back in my mind. I can, I can go back in my mind and, and recreate everything in my mind. I thought that was interesting, that you can go home in your mind. We all have that, and particularly the older you get, you know, when you kind of get on the treadmill of life, you have this, you know, these rose-tinted goggles possibly when you go through your teens or maybe your early 20s when you've got ambition and direction and you just don't know what the world's going to kind of lay out for you and then when you get into your 40s and then early 50s you're kind of looking back and going yeah I miss those simple things or actually you know I got caught in this treadmill of trying to get a career and earning money and paying for a mortgage and you know all of these things that society laid out in front of us that were normal and yet when we all get to these days friends that I've talked to we always want to go home. There's always those bits, whether it's in our head or the physical place, but it's, you kind of want to go back. And 
I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who was the head of another school, a really great school in the Middle East. He was just going, what age are you really? Like, if you were to go out with friends, like, what age do you go back to? And I found that a fascinating question. And I said, I'm probably 21. He goes, his was 20. And he goes, they were just the best times of my life. So every time I get together with my friends, and they're all in their 50s, they're all successful by societal terms of success, is that we're all just that 20-year-old kid again. And I wonder whether or not that's something as well we can reflect on. Well, you know, one of our mottos here at Andover is, Finis origine pendet. The end depends on the beginning. Now, I have mixed feelings about that. It very much is this grounded in the reality that for a lot of our graduates, even though they have formative experiences, at some, they often go on to extraordinary universities and careers. For many of them, not all, but for many, their transformative educational experiences here, more so than college or grad school or they learned to be who they became sort of here. And so they have these deep emotional ties. And I think that's part of the boarding school experience at its best. It can be complicated. Yeah, it absolutely can. I want to ask you about your favorite book. Ah, my favorite book, probably, well, the book that most sort of rocked my world was 100 Years of Solitude, just because it's sort of, I wasn't into magical realism, is that the term? Uh, you know, that, that culture was new. I just didn't know anything at all. And it just reading it, you sort of are able to suspend all of your constraints to your thinking. And you just enter into this world that was beautifully written. It just held together as this piece. It allowed me to read Toni Morrison, actually, because I had had trouble with Toni Morrison. <laughs> I mean, she's a hard read, I know. And I must have started Beloved four or five times before I finally could get through it. But I have gotten through it. I actually have read it. <laughs> well, well done. I mean, that's showing a lot of key skills that we want to kind of steward to our young men and women at your school and other schools, right? And that some determinations and resilience you've got to dig through, right? Sometimes you may not love it. You've been told it's good and stick with it, actually, because there might be something great at the end of it. You might get to the end and think, God, that was a waste of 10 hours. You know, another one, actually, the one that I really recently was Omerus by Derek Walcott, a massive long poem. And it basically, as I understand it, it was what got him his Nobel Prize. And my father's Jamaican, and we go back there regularly, very much sort of the Odyssey basically told in a more complicated way, but taking place primarily in the Caribbean. It's a hard read because the way it's structured, I forgot the name of the poem, and it's a lot of patois, of French patois, and it's really hard. Again, I tried multiple times. And finally, one of my brothers said, you know, you just have to just plow through it. And you'll get parts of it that are just breathtakingly beautiful. And then sometimes you'll go like five pages and read and think, what just happened? Like, Where was I for those five pages? My wife, when she gets into the book, because she just thinks life's precious and time is precious and she won't waste her time. Going too far into a book of it just does not make her feel alive, right? If, she, if she's getting no joy out of it. Even if it's critically acclaimed, she'll go and she judges it based on what connection she gets with it. And uh, I suppose there's a, a scholarly look at it and then there's a personally like look at it. What makes me feels great. But again, sometimes you sort of, it takes you a while into it. I don't think Omerus is available by audio. And normally I don't like audio books. I mean, I've been trying to get better at it, but I thought, okay, this is one where it would be great because his spoken voice was so distinctive. He speaks with a Caribbean accent. This one, is one that you want to hear 
And it turns out he never recorded it. I tracked down through a weird series. I was able to track. He read like uh, the first maybe quarter or fifth of it at some weird radio station somewhere. And, and I was able to track it down. And it took forever to get it on little cassettes. And no, he never did the whole thing. Well, Toni Morrison's done the whole, you know, she did her own reading. What about favorite song, an artist? Do you have a song, an artist? No, I have pretty eclectic taste. What are you listening to at the moment? Last week was a hard week. You know, when I was in internship, whenever I had bad night, a couple of friends of mine, and we were often the only black trainees at the hospital. So we'd say, yeah, last night had me singing spirituals. You know, like, it was like so bad. This summer, this weekend, I listened a lot to Aretha Franklin's concert of gospel music. And so I was listening to Aretha Franklin singing gospel. So, you know, last week had to be like... You're not in the mood to listen to your favorite song always. And actually you get in, I get into the car sometimes and I just have to put on something that makes me feel how I want it to feel right then. And you just go through and do it. So you had some gospel. Aretha Franklin, another great one was, there was an old documentary film made years ago called Say Amen Somebody. And it was about sort of Black gospel singers, beautiful recording. I mean, really an unbelievable CD of gospel music, you know, famous ones from then who have all died. It was another one where it was a good, the track to Say Amen Somebody and then Aretha Franklin's, which I'm still blocking on name, is the most sold album, gospel album ever, with the largest number of sold records. Favorite type of cuisine and go-to dish? I've developed a love for Indian food. And, you know, a lot of Jamaican food has strong Indian, East Indian populations were brought over to Jamaica after slavery in the 1800s. The food has big chunks of Indian cuisine and Chinese, and because they were Chinese laborers who were brought over as well. So you have these, Jamaica's interesting cultural mix. So butter chicken, I'm pretty good at sort of a nice rice, Indian rice, basmati rice. If you weren't in education, if you could start again and stay there, what job would you do? What industry would you go into? I'd be a playwright, without a doubt. I have periods when I've gotten into writing, I've taken courses and actually got halfway through a writing master's program. But yeah, I would sort of do the Iowa Writers Workshop. And at one point in my career, I sort of had to think about taking writing more seriously. I have the distinction of being a dropout of Columbia Journalism School. But like all successful leaders, there's a lot of failure, which we never took. You know, no one wants to talk about that being ahead of any organization. Yeah, yeah, I failed at lots of stuff educationally. Yeah, I'm running the biggest imposter syndrome. I feel that. But, you know, in many ways, I believe one of my what was both a blessing and a curse was that I was pretty good at a lot of things, but not brilliant at anything. I had to make a career decision about whether I was going to basically go into some type of leadership role. I viewed that as sort of being external lead focus or whether I was going to take seriously the writing and that was going to be more internally focused. I chose the former, but it was the big decision point for me. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. And you still like writing now? Do you write lots of pieces? Do you like to kind of carve out your thoughts to construct them in such a way that is easy to read? You understand the audiences because you, you still got to, you haven't got the actors or, you know, all the scenes, but it's the same way you still got to form this narrative. 
I mean, I, I haven't as much in the last couple of years as I did a little bit more in the previous 10 years when I was at Grinnell, I did a lot more. I've been approached about writing a book and I sort of, I've ventured off a while into writing short stories and I didn't have the novel in me. I didn't, can't see that. I didn't develop the expertise really. And you really need, it, there's a lot of skill in uh, writing for plays. I mean, it, it's really, you can't just sort of do that. I think you have to have a knowledge base that I don't have. I do think some in my writing, but I need to do more of it, actually. I'm at this another pivot point of whether I'm going to start doing that more, just to sort of, almost as therapy, you know? I'd love to do more of that stuff. There's no question, but it's carving out the time, right? And you, you got to give yourself the time. And I think that, that that's the Achilles heels for most leaders is being able to find yourself enough time, not being caught in the weeds. So I live in a house called Phelps House, which is a 200-year-old house on campus, complicated history. But at one point, president of Andover Theological Seminary. So for 100 years, largely from like 1800 to 19, early 1900s, in addition to the academy, there was the Andover Theological Seminary, which was a breakoff from Harvard, actually a more conservative breakoff when Harvard Theological School was went sort of Unitarian. Then it eventually moved and merged into Yale. It's now part of Yale. A theological school. So, but this house was for the president of that school and then was taken over. But one of the president's wife named um, Elizabeth Stewart Phelps was a famous 19th century feminist and writer. She wrote all these novels about sort of the afterlife and particularly after the Civil War, those types of novels were very popular because so many people had family who had been killed in the war. There was a, a writing room, like a little room, like 10 by 10 with an oven, wood oven and three windows, three big windows, and it exists. And so it's been renovated. So now I literally have a room of my own that's sort of outside. It's beautiful. It's like a one beautiful sort of standalone little room that is my writing room. It still has like the original, some of the original glass from 18, the wavy glass from the 1800s. Beautiful little room. That's like a writing room. So I have no excuse. There's no excuse. Well, apart from you being the leader, you know, where the buck stops with you of one of the biggest schools in America. I mean, apart from that, you have taken a truly unique path to and overtaking work in health, nutrition, science, medicine, and even behavioral science. How did this combination of experiences lead you to education and eventually to your role as head of school? I spent about 10 years at the National Institutes of Health in a number of different roles. I was sort of, I eventually became the deputy director, was sort of the number two person. So a lot of administrative, you know, and science policy and managing science and all of that. And I started to get approached about possibly running a university. I wasn't quite sure if that was right for me. And I had to think and I thought, well, you know, actually, if I were to describe my career, the whole, and I sort of thought through this through even then, what I'm into is knowledge creation, transmission, preservation, application of knowledge. I think I'm in the knowledge business. So all of my career has been about that. And so when I went from NIH to liberal arts college, although a lot of people thought it was a big leap, I didn't think of it as a big leap. NIH ran, had a huge training program and at one point considered becoming a university. And so there was a lot of knowledge creation and transmission and application and sort of I see myself as being in the knowledge business, and I've been at different pieces of that business, but the core thing that I'm into hasn't changed, actually. I've changed. I've gone to different places. So at Andover, it was about 
um, a different developmental stage, much more focused on the transmission of knowledge, some on the preservation of knowledge, just because we're a pretty old place with lots of knowledge of various sorts, and we have museums and all of that, a little bit less on application and less on creation of knowledge. So I see my career sort of going to different places where there were different areas of emphasis in the sort of knowledge business, but it was the knowledge business. And so that's how I think of them as being connected. And that's how I began to think this way as I was wondering whether or not it was time to leave NIH and whether I should become head of a leadership position in higher ed. And did you always set out to be a head of school? Never. It never crossed my mind. I, I never, I mean, even in the most remote, I mean, it was nowhere in my thinking. Even when I was at most of my time at Grinnell, you interviewed Mike Latham. So Mike Latham was the dean at Grinnell. And then, and I must admit, that sort of, it must have planted a seed of some sort in my mind. But I thought, oh, that, I gave him great recommendations. Great. It ended up being a great thing for him. I must have sort of thought maybe that's a possibility. But the only reason why I applied at Andover is because I was at a meeting at Aspen. There's a meeting every year. It used to be at Aspen of presidents of universities and colleges and board members. It was interesting. It's about, about higher education. Really interesting meeting. And a colleague, her husband, who's also a college president, her husband was a, went to Andover and was on the search team. And I was getting on a shuttle to the airport. And he stopped me and said, you know, Andover is thinking about its next head and thinking about maybe looking at college presidents. Would you have any interest? And I said, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Got on them. And here I am. It literally never crossed my mind. Then when I got here and actually learned, I thought, okay, yeah, actually, this is of a piece with everything else I've done. That is just a different piece of that world of knowledge. And primarily distinguished by the developmental stage of students. They had a different developmental stage. What's the most significant difference between the two roles, being head of school or a college president? I think it's mostly this developmental stage of kids. And I've found that high school kids, or at least Andover kids, and I know they're not typical in lots of ways, their minds are more open in a way. And I don't mean that as a criticism of all college and university students. It reflects developmentally where they are. They haven't sort of, when you land in college, you're starting to function as your own person sort of independently, really often for the first time for most kids. You sort of have a sense of where you are. And there's almost like this inherently oppositional framing to the rest of the world. I think it's sort of a reflection of that stage. While it, in high schools, in particular a place like Andover, kids aren't as settled. They're not quite there. I find that interesting and challenging in a different way, of course. And the whole lived experience adds a whole nother dimension to it. But yeah, that's the biggest difference is that an openness of mind that is reflective of their developmental stage that I think also is the great opportunity of these schools. And that's sort of helping to form who the person is. We talk about character here. We don't use that word as much. It's become stigmatized in a lot of ways, that way of thinking very old school, old school, <laughs> and, you know, Eden and all that, and Harrow. And, you know, it's sort of, so we don't talk about character um, until we find a better word. And we talk about that in ways that it's just been completely abandoned at higher education level. This idea that you shape the type of person the student becomes is literally sort of never talked about anymore at higher education level. 
And I think that's sort of a law. Yeah, it is. I mean, I mean, that whole transition piece, I mean, because we're trying to educate these young men and women to a world we cannot imagine, or we can imagine it, but it's changing so quickly that us as the current stewards of this future aren't probably the best role models for them. And then you have this juggle and you're in a really sort of fortunate position, the fact that you've had your feet in both camps. So, you know, looking at matriculation and college entry and going, Actually, you talked about the development of knowledge and that capital that we have. But you know, it's how do we use that knowledge capital? We want problem solvers, creative thinkers. You know, you talk about character too. I think we've got the stigmatized view of what character is. And in the British way, it's like the stiff upper lip, stiff upper lip. But there's been modern kind of adaptions or actually there's character values, you know, about having a moral compass. Where is the humility and service and some other key virtues that you might have? You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.